0: Ready for another round of Q&A? Good, because that's what we're doing. (laughs) So welcome tonight. We're going to be talking about uh, one question in particular. If we have time, we're going to cover the second. I'm going to try to do my best to cover both of these tonight. I want to try to um, keep clipping through some of these questions to get more done. Because I know some of you are like, hey, when are you going to answer my question? We're getting to it. We're getting to it. And so I want, to, I want to go through these, and uh, if we've got some time at the end, we'll do some follow-up questions uh, to finish things out tonight. But let's go ahead and pray, and then we will get into it. Father, thank you for being such a good and faithful Father. Thank you for loving us um, while we were your enemies. Thank you for giving us a book that we can uh, really place everything on, uh, that it is our final authority, and um, that is not popular today. Uh, there's a lot of people that want to operate on their emotions and um, maybe even from their tradition or or uh, other circumstances and and they think that they know how to walk with you, but you and your word cannot be separated and we need to hold your words in high esteem. And I enjoy being able to open up the Bible together and what a privilege to do this together as a church on Wednesdays and Sundays and I pray that we would not take it for granted, and I pray that as a result of this study that you would give us more of your heart, uh, give us more of a burden for this world, Um, maybe even see opportunities for us to keep uh, just inviting people to church and talking about spiritual things, because there are people that are out there that are hungry and they're searching, and there are some that do not want it at all, and so I pray that you give us wisdom and discretion, discernment, give us open doors, give us boldness. Not because of who we are, but because of who you are. And so, Father, we love you. We thank you. Um, Help us tonight. Give us wisdom. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so tonight we're going to be talking about climate change, and this is an interesting one. Um, There's some straightforward answers that we will definitely talk about, and I I tried to uh, summarize this by some of the, the most glaring things. We'll hit this. And then at the very end, if we've got time, I want to talk about the difference between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven, which is very, very important in order to understand the whole of Scripture properly. So as we consider climate change and what does the Bible say about climate change, I decided to go into uh, the world, the intranets, and uh, pull out the definitions that they like to throw out there. And they've refined these, you can tell over the years, and they're a lot more subtle, so there's definitely some things in between the lines. And so the first definition of climate change is the long-term and periodic modification of the Earth's climate caused by atmospheric changes and the atmosphere's interactions with geologic, chemical, biological, and geographic factors. And of course, that keyword factors, is where a lot of governments have started to take um, great liberty with carbon taxing and doing a lot of other things to try to unite the world behind this worldwide religion, for sure, of climate change. The second definition is global warming, which is the less popular one now uh, because there's evidence that the earth is actually in a cooling phase in the atmosphere, especially the upper atmosphere when you study the science behind it. But they've gone away from global warming and have adopted climate change as the phrase. But this is the ongoing increase in global average temperature and its effects on the Earth's climate system. And going into this with your study sheet, more specifically climate change, global warming is said to be a direct result of humanity's abuse of the Earth and its resources. And then I also found this quote, for thousands of years, nature had well-regulated the concentration of greenhouse gases, but this started changing when humans began burning fossil fuels as a global means of creating energy, resulting in a sharp rise of unnatural CO2 emissions, and this has interfered with the planet's atmospheric balance. And so the theory of climate change, of the advocates and the worshippers of climate change, is that if we all do not change our ways, and come together as a human race to live a carbon-neutral way of life, we will be directly responsible for the apocalyptic events that will destroy our planet. So that is it. And the hard part about this is that there's so many times where I want to roll my eyes so bad where I end up having a headache. However... I do, I do agree that there is a stewardship aspect of the earth, for sure, and I do think that there are, there are things that are happening in our world today that there is great abuse happening to the planet, and there are things like that that just make sense, This just make logical sense. So we're going to take a balanced approach to this and talk about it, but one of the things I was thinking about with this is if, if any of you follow Apple at all, some of you don't care about Apple whatsoever. But on their their recent update, I've always been a fan. I remember when Steve Jobs released the first iPhone and it was like the biggest deal. And you watch on the Internet as he, you know, talked about Blackberries and then had this new phone. And it was amazing because no one else had done it before. And so they have these keynote meetings and addresses where they like to unveil new products. And if any of you caught the last one that they had for September, it was very interesting. There was a a, a section in the middle where they had... This uh, produced, I guess, um, skit, if if you want to call it that, where there was a very important meeting happening at Apple headquarters. And so you had all the big wigs, you had Tim Cook as the CEO, you had all the other heads of all the departments, and they were sitting down around the table. And normally you'd think in that meeting that it would be Tim Cook that would be the one leading the meeting, because he's the head of of the whole company. But then, as they sat around, they were all very, very nervous. And as they were very nervous, they were awaiting someone who was in charge of the meeting and it wasn't the CEO. And then you had an actress show up and she played Mother Nature. And as a result, they went through this entire thing about how they were there, was, there were certain demands that Mother Nature had upon them as a corporation and things that they were doing and all the things they did to meet her demands. And it eerily reflected a very pagan worship of the earth that this entire company has this goal by 2030, which if any of you are into conspiracy stuff, 2030 is a huge one. And when it comes to the uniting the world together um, with the World Economic Forum and all that stuff. So it gets pretty psycho pretty fast. But this whole premise was that Mother Nature was this goddess that if we did not respect her, she would yield wrath upon the entire planet because of humanity's abuse of the resources of the earth. And it was pretty crazy. I mean, it's pretty crazy, but I'm like, well, it makes sense. It makes sense with the world's agenda. It makes sense with the leaders of this world. They're trying to systematically dismantle anything that comes against a independent nation in this world. And you just see everything going this direction. And so we have a couple choices to make in this matter. We can either get super frustrated and distracted by it and stop doing the work of the Lord or understand it and try to use it to our advantage some way, somehow, Uh, because this world is not our home. And it's very difficult for us when we see things happening in our country and in our world that we don't like and that we don't necessarily agree with, but we have to remember this is not our home. The system of this world, the ways of this world are always going to be contrary to the biblical way of life. We should not be surprised by that. We should just say, well, of course, this was bound to happen and more and more things are going to unfold. So that's not to say that we should not be good stewards, and that brings up our first point. So turn to Genesis chapter 1 with me. We're going to look at Genesis together and Leviticus in in, in the Bible, and I've got some cross references up on the screen, that there is a stewardship of the earth, and God does make that clear. There is a stewardship of the earth, and this is a very interesting thing to consider, Um, and I think that... Uh, The governments and the leaders of this world are taking advantage to control populations through these concepts rather than having a biblical understanding of it. But in Genesis 1, verse 26 and 27, it says, And God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the fowl of the air, and over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth. So God created man. In his own image, in the image of God created he him, male and female created he them. And God said, and God blessed them, and God said unto them, Be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the fowl of the air and over every living thing that moveth upon the earth. And then he continues off from there. So just from these verses, we see that God has given the stewardship of the planet to Adam and Eve. And there are things that can be abused. But he gave the stewardship to them that they were supposed to subdue it. They're supposed to have dominion over it. And that doesn't mean that they can just do whatever they want. If you're going to have proper submission of the earth and dominion over the earth, if you're going to actually have it in your control, you're going to want to do whatever you can to make it fruitful and even work for you. It would be crazy for you to do things that go against against nature and how God has designed it. And another example of this is in chapter 2. You can see in verse 8, Where it says, And the Lord planted a garden eastward in Eden, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And then if you go over to verse 15, it says, And the Lord God took the man and put him into the Garden of Eden to dress it and to keep it. So he had to dress it and to keep it. So there was work to be done in order to maintain God's garden. And so if he slacked on his job, then he would not have have been faithful to the stewardship of what God gave him, according to verse 15. So there was work to be done in order to nurture it, to be a husbandman in the garden. And so there you see that's part of this stewardship that God gave to Adam. Now go over to Leviticus 18. Leviticus 18. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus. Leviticus chapter 18. Leviticus 18 25 through 30. Leviticus 18. So God's laying out some principles, some laws, and he says, talking about the nations of the earth, he says in verse 24, Defile not ye yourselves in any of these things, for in all these the nations are defiled, which I cast out before you. So they're going to be entering into the promised land, and there are specific things that these nations are doing that they have defiled themselves, and so I've cast them out. But look what it says in verse 25. And the land is defiled. Therefore do I visit the iniquity thereof upon it, and the land itself vomiteth out her inhabitants. So there were things that these nations were doing. That they didn't just defile themselves and their sins, but they were actually defiling the land. And so God, this is his planet, and if they did things in a certain way, then God says, okay, well, the land's going to just vomit you out. So there is a clear stewardship after the fall of mankind, even among nations that, that really did not belong to God, that he held them to a certain standard. And if they did not clean up their ways and do things that were honorable, then there was the standard that was upheld that this land is defiled and this land is actually going to vomit you out of, of that land. And that's why he says in verse 26, Ye, Israel, shall therefore keep my statutes and my judgments and shall not commit any of these abominations, neither any of your own nation, nor any stranger that sojourneth among you. For all these abominations which... Abominations have the men of the land done, which were before you, and the land is defiled. That the land spew not you out also, when ye defile it, as it spewed out the nations that were before you. For whosoever shall commit any of these abominations, even the souls that commit them, shall be cut off from among their people. Therefore, shall ye keep mine ordinance, that ye commit not any one of these abominable customs which were committed before you, and that ye defile not yourselves therein, for I am the Lord your God. So that was very important. And you find out that the nation of Israel did not actually keep this. And so he says this about the nations that were before, and then he warns them again. Turn over to chapter 25. He tells the nation of Israel to do something else in the book of Leviticus. Chapter 25 and verse 1. And the Lord spake unto Moses in Mount Sinai, saying, Speak unto the children of Israel and say unto them, When ye come into the land which I give you, then shall the land keep a Sabbath unto the Lord. Six years thou shalt sow thy field, and six years thou shalt prune thy vineyard and gather in the fruit thereof. But in the seventh year shall be a Sabbath of rest unto the land, a Sabbath for the Lord. Thou shalt neither sow thy field nor prune thy vineyard, that which groweth of its own accord of thy harvest thou shalt not reap neither gather the grapes of thine vine undressed, for it is a year of rest unto the land. And the Sabbath of the land shall be meat for you, for thee and for thy servant, and for thy maid, and for thy hired servant, and for thy stranger that sojourneth with thee, and for thy cattle, and for the beasts that are in thy land, shall all the increase thereof be meat. And so then he gives them more specifics on how to actually observe this, and you have the year of Jubilee and all that. So they were supposed to keep a Sabbath for the land. So every seven years, they were not to do anything with their fields. And you actually find out this is one of the reasons why God pronounced judgment upon them as a nation. And they went into captivity in Assyria and Babylon. And Jeremiah lays this out very clearly because he went back into the scriptures and he says, I understood by books why this is going to come and when it's going to come and all this stuff. And it's because they did not keep the Sabbath of the land. So the nation of Israel abused the land because of their sin, and they abused the land because they did not keep a Sabbath of the land every seven years. And then as a result, they were in captivity for 49 years, actually turned into 70 altogether, because of all the things that they had done against the land. And so there you see that God has given the nation of Israel a specific stewardship for the land of Israel. And so that's another thing that you see there. So there's that stewardship of the earth. A couple other verses I found pretty interesting were Proverbs 12, 10, just talking about creation. A righteous man regardeth the life of his beast, but the tender mercies of the wicked are cruel. Even within the precepts of God, and just talking about wisdom, those that are righteous, they actually care for creation. They care for their animals. It's against nature for you not to care for what belongs to you, especially when it comes to creation. And so that's interesting. It's very, very interesting. And then I found this one, and this is this is where I, I find it with uh, the day and age that we come to now with Laodicea heading into the Tribulation. But talking about the judgment uh, that is to come during the Tribulation, it says, And the nations were angry, and thy wrath is come and the time of the dead that they should be judged. This is at the very end of the Tribulation. And that thou shouldest give reward unto thy servants, the prophets, and to the saints, and to them that fear thy name, small and great, and should us destroy them which destroy the earth. So God says that there is a destruction coming for those that do not care properly for the earth. And specifically, he's talking about Babylon, and he's talking about the world system. So what's crazy, which we shouldn't be surprised, is that we live in a time of Laodicea where good is bad, bad is good, wrong is right, right is wrong. And you have a almost worldwide movement among all the major nations of the planet to save the earth. But behind the curtain, they're destroying it. And you can see that. I mean, even in the technology that we have, if you do any sort of research whatsoever, I mean, the nonsense of pushing electric cars. I mean, if you just have a smidge of common sense and access for five minutes on the Internet, you find out that that is the worst possible thing you could do for our planet because they are mining like all these materials that can't be recycled. And then they turn around and they're like, oh, well, I'm saving the planet because I'm driving an electric car. Well, where's the electric coming from? Well, it's coming from coal plants. And then you say, well, a cleaner form of energy would be nuclear. Well, we can't talk about nuclear, although it is. When you, when you study all that stuff out, it's, it's the best. And it's the most stable and it's the most profitable, and yet they won't even touch it. So it's like, okay, typical, they're talking out of two sides of their own face. It's because it's about money. That's really what it's about. So we have to understand that there is a stewardship of the earth. And should we do our part as Bible believers to take care of it? Absolutely. This is God's place. And, and why, why wouldn't we? And so when you think, and you see how God feels about the planet and one of the big things at the very end that he's going to destroy them which destroy the earth, we should care about things and we should think through stuff, we should. But we're not going to go as far as everybody else and begin worshiping this whole concept of climate change because the agenda is off. They say one thing but they mean something completely different. So we have to be very, very careful. So there's that concept that I was thinking about with climate change. The second point that I want to hit is that God and Satan use the earth's weather and environment to further their respective wills. And so you see this throughout Scripture. Uh, In Genesis 41, God used uh, the famine with Joseph in order to redirect the nation of Israel and really the beginning of it and get them into Egypt and then to build a nation thereafter. So God was accomplishing something there. So he caused the famine to unfold to redirect Joseph and his family appropriately. And as a result, we have one of the greatest types of Jesus Christ in the scriptures through Joseph. It's beautiful. In the book of Ruth, you find out that God used the famine to direct Ruth where he wanted her to go. Uh, And now you have the book of Ruth, which is another beautiful picture of the Lord Jesus Christ and us as born again believers through Ruth and Boaz. But God used that to direct the nation of Israel properly, and it was a form of judgment during the time of Judges. And then he also used in 2 Samuel 24 pestilence with David because he sinned by numbering the people. And so he sent disease among the people as a form of punishment and judgment. So that happened. In Jonah, chapter 1, verse 4, you see that Jonah at this point, he's completely disobedient to God. God told him something to do. Go to Nineveh and preach unto them the words which I'm going to give you. And he's like, "Uh uh-uh, I ain't having none of that. And then you find out that he goes down, down, down into Tarshish, into a ship, and off into the sea. And so to get Jonah's attention, to grab his heart, to accomplish this mission specifically for him, it says, but the Lord sent out a great wind into the sea, and there was a mighty tempest in the sea, so that the ship was like to be broken. And of course, after this happened, he's like, hey, I'm a dead man, just throw me into the waters, and then God prepares a great fish or a whale uh, in order to swallow him up. And uh, he dies and resurrects and goes and preaches unto Nineveh. That's a beautiful picture, again, of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ and the saving of a Gentile nation. It's just really cool. So there's Jonah. And you start to see how God uses that. In Revelation 18, during the tribulation period, as he is judging Babylon, that final time, he says, Therefore shall her plagues come in one day, death and mourning and famine, and she shall be utterly burned with fire, for strong is the Lord who judgeth her. And so God causes these things unfold because he is moving. And so when you see God moving in this fashion, he's, remember a few weeks ago, we talked about how God is the most high and he directs the affairs of the earth as the most high. And this is what Lucifer wanted to be like from the very beginning that led to his sin. Well, God uses worldwide events such as famines in order to redirect Gentile nations and to do the things that he wants to accomplish. Now, can we understand all those all the time? No, absolutely not. But we do know that God is holy, and he is just, and he is loving. And so whatever he's doing, he knows what he's doing. And I believe there are many things after this life is over that we will come to understand when we are with him one day, that we will look back and say, oh, wow. And there's little glimpses of that within history. I mean, you could even look in and talk about some of the things that unfolded uh, with uh, just the, the Crusades. I mean, the Crusades were horrible, absolutely horrible. But when you come to that battle between, you know, Roman Catholicism and their armies and, and you come against the Muslims and if there's that one battle, I forget the name of the city, uh, that, they, that they came head to head. If the Muslims would have won, then we would have been Muslim in our country today, probably, most likely. Uh, but God caused that to cease. He caused everything to stop and it, it was like a brick wall for them. And there's several things that are like that. I think about the, the Spanish Armada when they were coming over to attack England and, and what happened there. They, God sent a strong tempest and destroyed the Spanish fleet. And as a result, then the Word of God could go throughout the entire planet. And so there's things like that that he does that we get little glimpses of. Um, but I know that when we get there, there's other things that we're gonna finally understand. So God uses the Earth's weather and environment to further his will for sure. But also so does Satan. Satan does as well. In Job chapter 1, now this was, he was given permission of God And God said, spare his life. And so he did. But in chapter 1, verse 18 and 19, it says, While he was yet speaking, there came also another and said, Thy sons and thy daughters were eating and drinking wine in their eldest brother's house. And behold, there came a great wind from the wilderness and smote the four corners of the house. And it fell upon the young men, and they are dead. And I only am escaped alone to tell thee. Now, this was not the hand of God. God did not do this. Satan did. And Satan used this great wind from the wilderness to actually kill his children. And so that's what he did. Turn with me over to Mark chapter 4. Several weeks ago, it was actually during the missions conference, Pastor Jay was teaching, and and this came to my mind when I was uh, working through this one. In Mark chapter 4, there's an event that occurs. where there's weather that unfolds, a great storm, and it was very likely not from God. So Mark chapter 4, take a look at verse 35, 35. And the same day, when even was come, he saith unto them, Let us pass over unto the other side. And when they had sent away the multitude, they took him, even as he was in the ship, And there were also with him other little ships. And there arose a great storm of wind, and the waves beat into the ship so that it was now full. And he was in the hinder part of the ship asleep on a pillow. And they awake him and say unto him, Master, carest thou not that we perish? And he arose and rebuked the wind and said unto the sea, Peace be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. And he said unto them, Why are ye so fearful? How is it that ye have no faith? And they feared exceedingly and said one to another, What manner of man is this, that even the wind and the sea obey him? So there was something that he was going to accomplish in chapter 5 when he goes over to the country of the Gadarenes. And you have a man that uh, could not, I mean, he was possessed by legion. And he sets him free. And we know that that's going to occur. But here you have this great storm. And what's interesting about this is that he rebukes. It says very clear that he rebuked, in verse 39, he rebuked the wind And said unto the sea, Peace be still. So something unfolded, and as God, He stepped in and rebuked it, whatever entity was actually behind this storm, and He said to the sea, Peace be still. And I think this is another reason why, when He was in the ship, the the hinder part of the ship, that He was asleep on a pillow. Because there's a lot of times where you find the enemy of God just wanting to intimidate Jesus. And I think this was one of them. There was something Jesus wanted to accomplish. And you have the enemy wanting to intimidate it and causing great fear, and he's asleep. And I mean, I just, I picture stuff like this, and I'm like, you know how mad that would have made the enemy? <laughs> it's not working. Try harder. <laughs> all right, why don't you actually kick it up harder so that way the disciples are now freaking out, and then, you know, they're going against their master. I mean, all these things are happening that we don't really see, but as you start to unfold and, and really search the scriptures, you start to understand that there's a whole lot more going on here than what meets the eye. And he rebukes that storm, and then it is still. In the same fashion, I found it interesting in Matthew 27. Now, I don't know if this one's the case or not, but I was just thinking about this. Matthew 27 is when Jesus is being crucified. And this would have been the greatest time of travail and difficulty that he had ever faced. When you think about him in the Garden of Gethsemane where he is praying and crying out to God and he's sweating tears of blood off of his forehead and from his eyes and all this stuff is unfolding, the, the great stress. And he said, Lord, if, if possible, take this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. And so you start to see how the enemy has just a heyday with Jesus and starts spitting on him, beating him falsely accusing him, people saying, if thou be the son of God, come down off that cross. I mean, it's all over. And Psalms talked about this in, in a prophecy form. And, and Jesus described it, that he was, he was alone and he was surrounded by these bulls of Bashan. And when you study out the bulls of Bashan, those would be the big dogs. Those would be the ones that are the main sons of God that fell in Lucifer's rebellion. And you find out that they were surrounding that cross and they were just railing. I mean, railing on him. And so as I think about this, I think about this verse where it says, Now from the sixth hour there was darkness over all the land until the, unto the ninth hour. This was the greatest moment of intimidation for the Son of God. 100% man, 100% God, and in his humanity was, was just spent. And what better way to intimidate the Son of God by scattering all the disciples where he has no one. Except for one, John comes back. The one that's supposed to be the leader is now denying him three times. You have all these ridicules and all these things that are unfolding and it seems like that it is it and he has absolutely failed. And then now to intimidate him, why not use creation? Let's make it absolutely dark. And that's why when he's crying out on the cross where he says, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Now he knew that God didn't forsake him, but in his humanity, he felt it. And he bore the weight of our transgressions upon his his shoulders. And he had God's wrath on him. And it would not be outside the realm of possibility that the enemy of God would have caused something like this to further the intimidation of our Savior. And so I just think about that. Don't know that for sure. But I know that Satan definitely uses the earth and the environment to further his respective will, for sure. So that's another thing to consider. Next, let's look at humanity will not destroy creation, but creation will destroy humanity. Turn to Genesis 6. Genesis 6. Genesis chapter 6. Genesis 6 is such a good chapter. Such a good chapter. Very controversial for some people. Not for us, though. We get a lot of wisdom from Genesis chapter 6. In Genesis 6, in verse 13, He's talking about the flood that's going to become uh, becoming here soon. In verse thirteen, number of rebellion, we've got. And God said unto Noah, "The end of all flesh has come before me, for the earth is filled with violence through them. And behold, I will destroy them with the earth. I will destroy them with the earth." And so this is a pattern that we see. Humanity is not going to destroy creation. God will use the creation to destroy humanity. And you see the same pattern in Revelation, which would be the next major apocalyptic event on the timeline here from the flood. In Revelation eleven thirteen, it says, In the same hour was there a great earthquake, and a tenth part of the city fell. And in the earthquake were slain of men 7,000, and the remnant were affrighted and gave glory to the God of heaven. And so that unfolds there. In Revelation 16, Verse 3 and 8 and 9, it says, And the second angel poured out his vial upon the sea, and it became as the blood of a dead man. And every living soul died in the sea. In verse 8 and 9, it says, And the fourth angel poured out his vial upon the sun, and power was given unto him to scorch men with fire. And men were scorched with great heat, and blasphemed the name of God, which hath power over these plagues. And they repented not to give him glory. And you see this over and over in Revelation, where God is not only judging the nation of Israel, but he's trying to get people's attention, and they will not humble themselves before him. And so the pattern that you see is humanity will not destroy creation, but creation will destroy humanity. It's been a fun one trying to navigate this with my kids in school, because they're going through a lot of you know eco-friendly stuff, and, and, uh, and, I, and I have had to talk with them. I'm like... <laughs> Seriously, we're not going to destroy this place. Like, okay, stewardship, yes, we should take care of what God has given us, but we're not going to destroy this place. The word of God is true. We know that it's true. The earth is going to destroy man. That's what's going to happen. And, of course, that's not popular, and I'm just waiting for them to talk to their teachers about it, and then I I get some kind of a phone call. But that is what the Bible says. That's what it says. That is absolutely what it says. And it should cause us great caution when the leaders of this earth begin worshiping the planet uh, because that is definitely going to be one of the end mean means of the uh, Antichrist in order to unite everybody together. I wouldn't put it past the Antichrist to even um, talk about the rapture and using the rapture as a means of, well, he, there's just planets overpopulated. And so I took them out. And he took blame for that, and, um, and it caused him to actually rise in power as a result. So, but anyway, that's just another opinion I have. Whether or not it's right or not, I have no idea. But I could see it happening. And then the last point here, planet-wide apocalyptic events are the consequence of God's direct judgment, Uh, and that is absolutely true. There are three major apocalyptic events that we see in Scripture. The first one we studied in detail, and that's Genesis 1.1 and 1.2. That is the fall of Lucifer's kingdom. God came to a point where there was no more that he could do. That was it. There's no more that he could do, and he had given warning after warning after warning, and then that was it. We see the same thing in Genesis chapter six, which are still there. And so here you have at the very beginning, we'll just work through this. It says, and it came to pass when men began to multiply on the face of the earth and daughters were born unto them that the sons of God, these are the fallen sons of God from Lucifer's rebellion, saw the daughters of men that they were fair and they took them wives of all which they chose. And the Lord said, my spirit shall not always strive with man for that he also is flesh, yet his days shall be 120 years. And there were giants in the earth in those days, and also after that. When the sons of God came in unto the daughters of men, and they bare children to them, the same became mighty men, which were of old, men of renown. So now you have a corrupting of the human race, uh, because these giants are abominations. They were never meant to exist. But when you have these sons of God having sex with women, and now creating these abominations, now these things start to unfold. And as a result, verse 5, And God saw that the wickedness of man was, was great in the earth. And that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. That is the first mention in your Bible of the word heart. And that should tell you something. If you follow that pattern all the way through, you are a fool if you follow your own heart. Because the thoughts of our heart is only evil continually. And then look at what God said after this, verse 6. And it repented the Lord that he had made man on the earth. And it grieved him at his heart. And the Lord said, I will destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth, both man and beast and the creeping thing and the fowls of the air, for it repenteth me that I have made them. But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. And now he gives more insight into why. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a just man, which means that he walked with God. And that's what the latter part of this verse says. He was just. He did that which was right. He was a man that was willing to stand up for what was right when no one else was willing to and perfect in his generations. He was perfect in his DNA. His DNA was not corrupted by the sons of God coming unto the daughters of men. He was perfect in his generations. And Noah walked with God. Noah was not chosen because he was the best man, necessarily. He was chosen because he was a just man. His DNA was clean. And he walked with God. And then he had these boys, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. But then it says in verse 11, the earth also was corrupt before God and the earth was filled with violence and God looked upon the earth and behold, it was corrupt. And here it is again, for all flesh had corrupted his way upon the earth. This is amazing to me because when you just look at the context and you just go back just a few chapters, what was God's way? Be fruitful and multiply. Multiply. It was a physical multiplication of people throughout the entire planet. And now all flesh had corrupted his way upon the earth. This is why it's very difficult for us as Bible believing Christians to coexist with all of this transgender LGBTQ stuff because it is a corruption of God's way. And so we can't just, it's, we're not against them. That's ridiculous. If you're against them, then you're a poor minister of Jesus Christ. We're against that way because it's against God's way. Anything that goes against God's way, we are against. And so here, flesh had corrupted his way. He had sexual immorality with the sons of God, with the daughters of men, creating abominations. And then you have man's wickedness. And it was so bad that only Noah was perfect in his generations. I mean, he was the last man standing. And he and his family. And that's why he was spared. Because from him, God could restart the human race, and it wouldn't be as corrupted. Not in that fashion. Until, like Jesus said, as it was in the days of Noah, so shall it be. And that's why I am fearful a lot of this genetic manipulation and stuff that's going on today. Because it's the same thing. As it was in the days of Noah, so shall it be. And I think that there's a lot of things at play behind the scenes with the sons of God that are, that are doing things about genetic code and giving mankind wisdom to understand how to actually do some of this stuff. Because it's exactly what happened back then. So that is that one. And that led to the flood of the entire planet and destroyed all of mankind. And notice it also destroyed the beasts and the fowls. So there was crossover of DNA between them too, And so that was destroyed as well. And of course we see it culminate with Revelation 20 as well where Jesus Christ comes back and he lays waste to the earth and he sets up his kingdom and that is the last apocalyptic event because after the thousand years then he sets everything on fire and then he creates a new heaven and a new earth. And so that is climate change. When I think of climate change, I think of those things. I think of the fact that should we be good stewards? Absolutely, for sure. But I also think about how God and Satan use the earth and its weather and its environment to further their respective wills and we see that throughout scripture. Uh, and then the earth is going to destroy humanity, not the other way around. And then lastly, there will be apocalyptic events that occur. And it's a, it's a direct consequence of God's, of God's judgment upon mankind. Okay, so there's that one. And if you've got follow-up questions on that one, we'll talk about it. Now this one, the difference between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven. Uh, this one's a really, this is very important. Uh, This is so important that if we don't have time to completely finish this, I want to pick this up next week. I'm going to try to do the best that I can in the last 15 minutes that we have. Um, But this one is so important that if you do not get this one down, you cannot have sound doctrine. If you don't get this, you can't understand your Bible. Every false doctrine can be traced back to a misunderstanding of the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of God. And it is no coincidence that in all modern Bible versions, that this is gone. And there's no coincidence at all. And it is very clear from the scriptures that there is a difference. Uh, But I will tell you, every false doctrine comes from a misunderstanding of this. And every time I come in contact with someone who starts to debate on different false doctrines, I try to take them back to this, because if you get this then it'll put you on the right track to understand things biblically. So this one is a big one. I got a lot of verses up on the screen, um, and there's some that I'm going to have to just talk about in general. We'll turn to a few passages, I think, but I want to make sure that we understand this thoroughly. So we need to begin with the kingdom of heaven, because I feel like once we get to the kingdom of God, you will get that 100%, because our spiritual walk exists within the kingdom of God. So you'll understand that very, very quickly. The misunderstandings that people have is always with the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven is the literal, physical kingdom set up by God, where Christ will rule and reign on the throne in Jerusalem. And the big thing that you need to remember with the kingdom of heaven is that it is literal, it is physical, and it is directly tied to the planet. This is very important. I'll give you a few examples. We'll work through this and you'll be able to see it. So the disciples, when Jesus Christ, before he ascended, the disciples, all they knew was the physical, literal kingdom. That's all they knew. And it makes sense, because when you go back into the Old Testament, the Old Testament is always about the literal, physical. It's always about the physical seed, lineages, generations, all that, like we just saw in Genesis 6. It always goes back to that physical, literal kingdom on the planet. So when Jesus Christ resurrects from the dead, and he spends 40 days with his disciples, and he's teaching them many, many things, they come together right before he ascends, and of course they don't know he's going to ascend. And in Acts 1, 6, it says, When they therefore were come together, they asked of him, saying, Lord, wilt thou at this time restore again the kingdom to Israel? This was a perfectly logical question. And they expected it. And if I were a disciple at that time, following Jesus, I would want to know this too. I probably would have been one of the disciples like, Hey, Peter, John, ask this question. You've got to ask this question. You've got to. And they were just waiting for it. In fact, I picture the disciples, like, they hear Jesus speaking. They're like, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah." But are you going to actually restore the kingdom unto Israel? Because this is what they've been waiting for. This is everything the Old Testament has been talking about. And they could not wait. And then, of course, Jesus' reply is, he says, It's not for you to know the times or the seasons which God has put in his own power. And after he had said those things, and he had given them the last comments of, when you sh- you'll receive power after the Holy Ghost has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses of me in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the earth. And it says, after these things, he went, and he was gone. And they didn't know what to do. Like, they were standing, looking, watching him leave. And this is their question. Are you going to restore? It's not for you to know. See ya. And then... And that's why the angels are like, "Uh, why are you standing here gazing up in heaven? Like, he's coming in like manner. Go and do what he told you. (laughs) That's what they said. And so they went to Jerusalem and they waited for the promise of the Father. And so after that, they're waiting for Jesus to come back. And they think it could happen at any time. And when you really study the scriptures, it technically could have happened at any point in time. Because when they receive the Spirit of God, they go out and they begin to preach how they crucified the Messiah. And they're preaching to the nation of Israel. And if the whole of Israel would have accepted Christ as their Messiah, and if they would have repented as a nation that they did this, Christ could have come back at that moment, and we would not exist. It's a crazy concept. If that blew your mind, just chew on it for a bit. It's absolutely true. But this is what they're asking they're focused on the physical nation of Israel. This is the kingdom of heaven. This is the kingdom of heaven. This is what God promised in Isaiah nine six and seven. It says, "For unto us a child is born, the physical lineage, physical child is born. Unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace there shall be no end. Upon the throne of David and upon his kingdom, Israel." to order it and to establish it with judgment and with justice from henceforth, even forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. This is talking about the physical, literal kingdom and that the Messiah will come. His government on the planet shall have no end. And it will be on the throne of David and it will be his kingdom. This is very clear. This is why there's so many Christians today that may read the Old Testament And they spiritualize all this stuff. This is literal. There is no symbolism here. It's the throne of David upon his kingdom to establish it with judgment and justice forever. Even Jesus. They're talking about this in Matthew 5, where he's talking about, you know, don't swear by this or don't swear by that. He says, nor by the earth, physical, for it is his footstool, neither by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And during this time, Jerusalem was not under the control of God per se. It was under the control of Rome. But it is still the city of the great king because he will take it back one day. And so that's what Jesus was talking about. In Matthew 25, uh, go ahead and turn there. Matthew 25, verse 31. You have the judgment of the nations. We won't have time to go through this completely. But this is the beginning of his kingdom. When he comes back, if you were to look at this on a timeline, you would have Revelation 19 where Jesus Christ comes back riding that horse and he is blood soaked from his vengeance that he pours out upon the planet. And then after that is done and it is over, he has all the nations in submission to him. And it says in verse 31, this would be the next event that that would unfold. When the Son of Man shall come in his glory and all the holy angels with him, then shall he sit upon the throne of his glory and before him shall be gathered all nations. And he shall separate them one from another as a shepherd divideth his sheep from the goats. And he shall set the sheep on his right hand, but the goats on the left. If you keep working through this, you find out, I got to summarize this just because of time. But you find out that he takes all the nations of the earth and he judges each and every one of them. And there are Gentile nations, all these nations, and they're either going to be sheep or they're going to be goats. And the, 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 the standard that they need to keep in order to be considered a sheep and not a goat is how they care for the nation of Israel. So during the tribulation period, you have the nation of Israel that is not really going to have a home. The Antichrist is going to come in and he's going to lay waste to Jerusalem and he's going to come in and defile the temple. He's going to sit on the mercy seat as his throne. He's going to declare himself as God. And in Matthew 24, Jesus said, when you see that happen, you flee to the wilderness. And so you have the remnant of the nation of Israel that are now running for their life for the second half of the tribulation. And they will find comfort all throughout the planet by some Gentile nations. There are going to be some pockets of Gentile nations that will care for the nation of Israel. And they don't even have to know God or even love God. They just have human compassion and they care about these people and they know that what's happening with the Antichrist is not right. And so they have compassion upon the nation of Israel, upon the Jews, and they harbor them. Similar things took place during World War II with Nazi Germany, where you had Germans and other people all around the planet that were secretly lying and hiding Jewish people so that way they would not go to the gas chambers. It's the same thing. It's just a shadow of what's to come. And so here you have nations that are going to be permitted into the millennial kingdom, and it says very clear in this chapter, read it later, when when did we care for you? When did we clothe you? When did we feed you? When did we give you water? And Jesus will tell them, when you did it unto my brethren, when you cared for my people, you were caring for me. So welcome. So you're going to have Gentile nations that, are not necessarily right with God, per se, as we would think of it in our terms, that are going to be permitted into the millennial kingdom because they actually just cared for the Jewish people. It's incredible. This is the judgment of the nations. This is one of the seven judgments that occur throughout Scripture. So here you see he's talking about a physical, literal kingdom, a physical, literal people. Very, very good. Very good on that one. Luke 1, 30 through 33 he says, And the angel said unto her, Fear not, Mary, for thou hast found favor with God, and behold, thou shalt conceive in thy womb, and bring forth a son, and shall call his name Jesus. And he shall be great, and he shall be called the son of the highest, and the Lord God shall give unto him the throne of David, of his father, David. and he shall reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there shall be no end. Second Samuel seven Verse twelve, and when thy days shall be fulfilled, when thy days be fulfilled, and thou shalt sleep with thy fathers, I will set up thy seed, physical, literal seed, after thee, which shall proceed out of thy bowels, literally, and I will establish his kingdom. That's talking about Jesus that would come in the future through his lineage. Psalm one thirty-two, verse eleven: The Lord hath sworn in truth unto David, he will not turn from it of the fruit of thy body literal, physical, will I set upon thy throne. Psalm 72, 8 through 11. And he shall have dominion also from sea to sea, literal, physical, and from the river unto the ends of the earth, that they they that dwell in the wilderness shall bow before him and his enemies shall lick the dust. The kings of Tarshish and of the isles shall bring presents. The kings of Sheba and Seba shall offer gifts. All kings shall fall down before him and all nations serve him. So this is all over the scriptures. I'll show you a few other ones. Jeremiah is another good passage you can read later, but I want to show you Daniel. And this gets into another question, which we'll probably talk about next week, talking about the, the statue of Daniel and its significance. When the iron... And the clay, the brass, the silver, and the gold broke into pieces together and became like the chaff of the summer threshing floors. And the wind carried them away that no place was found for them. And the stone that smote the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. Literal, physical, on the earth. And in the days of these kings shall the God of heaven set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed. And the kingdom shall not be left to other people but it shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms, and it shall stand forever. This is the kingdom of God. This is that physical, literal kingdom. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians 15. This one I do want you to see. 1 Corinthians 15. Verse 24, talking about the three parts of the rapture in verse 23, but every man in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, afterward they that are Christ at his coming, then come at the end, when he shall have delivered up the kingdom to God, even the Father, when he shall have put down all rule and all authority and power, for he must reign till he hath put all enemies, literal, under his feet, The last enemy that shall be destroyed is death, for he hath put all things under his feet. But when he saith all things are put under him, it is manifest that he is accepted, which did put all things under him. And when all things shall be subdued unto him, then shall the Son also himself be subject unto him that put all things under him, that God may be all in all. So at the very end, when you have Revelation 19, Jesus Christ comes back, sets up his kingdom, And he rules and reigns. And then you finally have the last enemy that is destroyed, and that is death, and that is after the final judgment. So you have uh, Revelation 20, 11 through 15, where you have sin being dealt with once and for all, and then you have a new heaven and a new earth. What happens here in 1 Corinthians 15 is that they are describing that at that point in time, Jesus Christ will yield all authority and all power about the physical, literal kingdom to God the Father. That is what he's going to do. And he yields to God the Father's authority, And in doing so, this is the kingdom of heaven being submitted to God the Father. This is the literal kingdom of heaven. So this is important to understand. Because when you get into the book of Matthew, Matthew is our key book for this one. Because the phrase kingdom of heaven is only found in the book of Matthew. It's only found in the book of Matthew. And with it being found in the book of Matthew, it makes perfect sense. Because Matthew is the book to the Jews. It is God being revealed as the king that will sit upon the throne of David in Jerusalem. And so you start to see that there's differences. I mentioned it even on Sunday. For those of you that are there on Sunday, I talked about how in Matthew chapter 5, that there are nine blessed statements in the Sermon on the Mount. But if you go over to where we were at in Luke, you see there's only four. But the four in Luke says, the kingdom of God. Yes, exactly. Because they're different. They're different. Modern Bibles totally eliminate that. And now you have inconsistencies because now you have something that's now completely hidden. In the book of Matthew, he's revealing how he is the literal king. He's the literal king that will sit on the literal throne in the literal Jerusalem. And when he sets up his kingdom, those nine blessed are going to be the beginning of his kingdom as he rules and reigns on the physical planet. And so that's now completely lost in modern Bible translations. Completely and totally lost. So it's important that you compare scripture with scripture. Because you'll see that there are things that are to us, the kingdom of God, and there are things that are to the literal, physical kingdom of heaven. And they might seem like they're a little bit off, and it's because they don't belong to us. That's not for us. It's not for now. And so many people get this wrong. They'll go into the book of Matthew, and they start pulling all these doctrinal things from the book of Matthew about, you know, you losing your salvation or all sorts of nonsense. And it's stuff that's written to the physical, literal nation of Israel under the rule and authority of the kingdom of heaven, Jesus Christ ruling and reigning over that kingdom. So it's very important. And so we're going to put a pause on this tonight, but I wanted to at least hit that. So I wanted to establish that one because that's the big one. The big one is the kingdom of heaven. And so next week we're going to continue this. We'll do a little bit of review about the kingdom of heaven. And we're going to talk about the kingdom of God and how that's different. But there is coming a day where God will unite these kingdoms back together as they were supposed to be and as it was in the very beginning. Because when you see this, and once you see it, you can't unsee it, you'll see this is what was always supposed to be. The kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of God were supposed to be two kingdoms that were intertwined as one. You have the physical literal with the spiritual invisible. And they were supposed to be put together in order to honor and glorify God throughout all eternity. And because of Lucifer and his sin, and because of Adam, In his sin, they were divided. And Jesus Christ came back as the second Adam, the last Adam. And he is going to restore both kingdoms once and for all. And God will be glorified into eternity future. All right, let's go ahead and pray. Father, we thank you for your word. It is very powerful. And it gives us great insight. It teaches us things that there is no way that we could know otherwise. And Psalm 119 makes it very clear. It makes us smarter than our teachers. And it's not because we are necessarily smarter, it's because we yield to its authority and we allow it to rule and to guide our lives. And so I pray, God, that you would help us to appreciate your word and to love your word and to let it be the guiding principle for everything that we do, that you may be honored and glorified properly. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.